This morning's scripture comes from the chapter of Matthew, chapter 25. We're going to begin with verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at the left. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food, or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you, or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these, who are members of my family, you did it to me. Then he will say to those at his left hand, You that are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, for I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not give me clothing, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. So here we go, once again, attempting to talk about a God that is uncontainable, yet we believe somehow knowable. Now, if you hold those two together, uncontainable and knowable, that means it's going to leave a lot of questions hanging in the air, but I love questions, uh, particularly questions of faith that come from children. I'll stand out front, and all of a sudden I look down, and here's a young one waiting for me to stop talking to the old adult so she can share a good question. Confirmation, that's why I like being in confirmation class. Um, they may be naive, but uh, they are brazen, bold in their questions, and they'll come up and say, well, Mr. Blackburn, I'm a little... I'm a little upset about prayer. I've been praying for all these things that I've wished and wanted, and I guess I've found out that God is not a genie that you rub and get all that you want. I said, hey, good. You're doing some good work. That's right. God's larger, greater than a genie, and more mysterious. And somebody will say, uh, I was kind of upset about some things that happened in school. Some, some people have done some cruel things. And what, where's God in this? Seems like God ought to step up and make sure that um, they're put in their place. And I say, oh, okay, you're discovering that God's not a cosmic policeman. This is good. We're growing. 
You see, these questions, these probings, it's like pulling back curtain after curtain, taking us deeper into the mystery of God. If God's not a genie, then who is God? If God's not a bellhop, then who is God? You know, it goes on and on. I think for the most part, uh, asking the right way, the questions of faith, they take us to a good place. They're kind of like the ants and the pants of faith. <laughs> they just keep us moving, growing, and stretching. But don't you think that we don't want to just stop at the boundaries of human questions? Your question, mine, our questions. I think it's true that in the pursuit of truth, that pursuit depends on the adequacy of our answers as much as our questions, as much as the adequacy of our answers. And do we ever think we can plumb the mysteries of grace and faith and truth and spirit if we never hear a question from the Godward side? So here's what we're going to do during Lent. Here's going to be our journey. We're going to be listening to six or seven questions from the master questioner from Jesus for decades now. I've been intrigued by the questions that he parried, the questions that he posed. What you heard in Matthew 25 is loaded with questions. Oh, you said, but most of the questions are coming from the human side. I mean, you know, the goats and the sheep. Oh, by the time Jesus' storyteller is finished, I guarantee you the stories or questions are coming back the other way. By the time this parable, we're finished with it or it's finished with us, here's a question that's going to be hanging in the air. What did you do? How did you respond to human need? Look, I, I work and move about in downtown Asheville. I have to hear that hanging question hanging in the air a lot. I was coming back from lunch the other day. I hadn't gotten back to the church. I was still about two blocks away, and I see this man coming toward me. He didn't look like he was in a good place. He, he was disheveled. He looked up and said, hey, preacher, now wait a minute. I have never seen him before. I don't think he's seen me. I really didn't want to think I looked like a preacher <laughs> or that I walked like a preacher. Hey, preacher, all right, okay, yeah. Um, could, could you have a little change for a hungry man? I had a little change. I had a few $1 bills in my right pocket, and I handed it to him. Look, I had no illusions. I didn't think I was doing anything that was going to relieve all human poverty. I'm not even sure I did the right thing, giving cash to somebody, and you don't know the whole story. I know. Look, this business of... Um, trying to figure out how we respond to human need. It's not simple, is it? It's not always straightforward. But guess what? Jesus isn't going to let us off the hook this morning. <laughs> he says, look, I'm sorry, but a world in which a woman doesn't have a safe place to put her head down at night, a world in which a child is going to go to bed without something to eat, um, that's a world gone awry. And in this parable, uh, Jesus condemns some people um, who chose hell over heaven on this earth, and God gave them what they wanted. Look, I know these, these parables that sound like parables of judgment, this is not always our favorite Jesus. I mean, when he seems to be turning the heat up, we would rather have Jesus of the prodigal son, the unconditional love of the father there on the porch, wa porch watching and waiting. But here's what helps me to remember in this parable. Jesus is dealing 
in the realm of human ethics, the ethics of the imperative of love. And what happens when we cross over into those ethics? We get into the cause and effect universe, okay, of eventual consequences. This is what happens. When you and I choose to separate ourselves, when we refuse to see how our lives are quilted with all other lives, the very fabric of creation suffers. Judgment in the parable, I'm not so sure it's that God punishes us as it is we have the freedom to eternally go on punishing ourselves. Judgment. There's some promise in this. Oh, yes, because the, there, there is the coat that is handed to the cold one. There is the visit that is made to the one in prison. And God says, those are the ones I want to have a good time with. Those are the ones I want to spend eternity with. Those are the ones that are going to bring heaven to earth. A lot of judgment, promise. I know what happens a lot of times when I hear something like this, though. You know, we're all the types we like this kind of works righteousness stuff you know show us you know show us the mountaintop show us the head of the class and watch us you know oh so this is what we're supposed to do to get there um do something for a hungry person okay three weeks ago i volunteered at manna food bank visit somebody that's sick oh it was three weeks ago i went to mission hospital check 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 we have a way of turning gospel into law checklist. No, even this parable is really the glad gospel of glad relationships with God and with all persons. We, were, we had kind of a glad moment in disciple Bible study one night. We were talking about this parable and uh, we were trying to figure it out, let it figure us out. And there was somebody in the group that just kind of chuckled and said, what's, what's so funny? He said, well, you know, I think it's kind of humorous when you really read this, how dumb everybody in the parable. We said, what do you mean? Well, it's not just the goats. I mean, he said, I guess the goats, those are the folks that they don't have a clue. They've never been to Sunday school. They've, they don't have a Bible to read. But the sheep, I mean, they're members of the flock. And my goodness, they didn't recognize where Jesus was showing up any more than the goats did. He was right. You know, he was on to something. Both groups, they... They're kind of surprised to uh, find out um, where God was actually to be found. It, isn't it kind of interesting that both of these groups are surprised that Jesus knew what they were doing even when they didn't think he was around. Oh, this is something. Barbara Brown Taylor said it this way. Both groups, sheep and goats, they thought Jesus was one place at a time like us. They thought Jesus was somewhere. Guess what? Jesus is everywhere. He's everywhere, especially in the little ones, especially in the so-called least ones, the door-to-door -door magazine salesman, the panhandler, the resident of the nursing home, the unnoticed, the stranger in the grocery store. And these persons are so close to Jesus. Jesus said, when you do something for them, you've done it for me. Does that sound a little daunting to you that Jesus isn't just in one place, not just somewhere. Jesus is everywhere. You get up in the morning, how are you going to have the courage to go out there and 
you know, think about when you might look in somebody's eyes and actually be facing the knowing glance of Jesus. Wow. All I know is we just got to struggle with this. <laughs> We're supposed to be challenged by it. Uh, so how do we live into this challenge? I, I think it begins with the eyes because Jesus is talking about what we see and what we don't see. I think it begins looking into the eyes of another person, even a stranger, until there is that um, risky moment of recognition. What do you mean, that risky moment of recognition? Oh, when we may just see the knowing glance of Jesus. And look, if I see Jesus there, what else have I seen? Kinship, relationship. I mean, Jesus may be everywhere waiting to catch our eye, but we don't see that. I mean, we, we often see what we've been taught to see. I was in Nashville some years ago. It was uh, some kind of a minister's convention or gathering. After two days, I'd had enough of ministers, enough of church talk. So I was a little rebellious and said to two or three of our group, said, let's just take the afternoon off. We're in Nashville. We're, we're, let, let's get out there. Let's, I've never been to Rymer Auditorium to see the, the beginnings of the Grand Ole Opry. So we got there. We got a little tour. We were doing this walking tour, about eight or ten of us. There were a couple of middle-aged women in the group. And one of them just got very just kind of excited and animated because she was looking across and she saw a man walking over there. I think she thought he was Waylon Jennings or Willie Nelson or something. And... Um, her friend looked over there and then turned back. She says, oh, come on. He's, nobody. He, he's not anybody famous. He's a nobody. Hmm. Nobody, okay. You know, we, we look. We never a lot of times see all there is to see. We look and we see dismissive categories and labels, drifter, stranger, nobody. Should it surprise us that some people in our midst become the invisible ones. Think about that. Invisible ones. Our culture, and I guess any society has always been really good, hasn't it, at um, covering the eyes and teaching us how to do that and how to plug the ears. Jesus said, no, I, I want you to look until you see all there is to see. Hey, Barbara Brown Tedder went on and talked about this passage. She said something really caught my attention. She said, you know, we read this and we think this is the great charity teaching of Jesus. You know, charity, she said, no, ch charity is throwing a few dollars into the beggar's cup. Charity is no substitute for kinship. She went on and said, um, first and foremost, we're not called to be social workers. We're not called to be philanthropists. We're called to be brothers and sisters. Connection. Where does it start? It starts with the eyes. Just try this sometime. Without even really thinking about it, just you, you look at someone long enough to see something in the face, maybe even the face of a stranger something that stops you in your tracks. You catch a glimpse of a surprising truth or beauty or need in someone else's face. Or maybe you just notice the tilt of an old man's Atlanta Braves baseball hat or the way a child looks out the window to the rain 
or the way a teenager sighs or puts her cheeks into the palm of her hands. You just stay with that look long enough until you see a deep connection, something that is deeper even than words. Jesus said if we could learn to look at each other that way, especially those, the least, the last, the lost, we'll no longer see a chasm, we'll see a connection. Maybe we'll even get a glimpse of Jesus. Now, you know, there's so many things we need to know about Jesus. So many things we need to know about the world. So many things we need to know about ourselves. I don't think we'll ever know those things unless we learn how to look. Do you notice that there are these goats, there are these groups that are, this group that is condemned in the parable? They are not condemned for doing anything wrong, no. They're condemned for doing nothing. Look, um, they, they, they didn't have some malevolent spirit toward the poor or the dispossessed. But it, the problem is when they looked at those persons, they didn't see any relationship. But there is a relationship. And so the question is this. What are we going to do about it? There is a relationship. What are we going to do about it? Uh-oh. Man, Rob, if you could have just kept it in this whole business of seeing things and how we look at the world. Now, now, now you've made it a little uncomfortable. Now we're talking about doing something. Come on. Look, we have done a disservice to this parable and this teaching if we leave it just in the realm of how we see the world. Oh, it may begin there but it doesn't stop there. This parable is loaded with action, motion words, visiting, feeding, welcoming, and it goes on and on, action verbs. You know, Jesus never thought that we could ever see the doing of compassion and love as optional. You know, time and time again, he was trying to show us that what we're talking about here is working with God to put the creation back together again that is out of sync. And we got to get that into our hands and our feet. He taught us in the gospels and the parables never to confuse the feeling, the analyzing, the saying, the thinking, uh, the understanding of love with the doing of love. The really question that this parable ends up with isn't our question. It's, it's going to be God's questions. It's going to be Jesus' question. You know, the suggestion here is that when the streets are all rolled up and all the switches are cut off and we're at the end of our ball of twine and when it's all said and done, Just one question. Just one question is going to be hanging there, asked of all of us. You know, somebody said, Rob, I, I took a peek at the final exam. One question. Wouldn't you like to know what that question would be? Yeah. So here's the question. One question. How did you respond to human need? Hmm. Not, not, what do you think about the, um, 
doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Um, how do you feel about the parousia, the second coming? No. According to Jesus in this parable, one question. I was alone. I was totally on my own. My husband died. My, my daughter has gone back to her home in St. Louis, and now I've gone back into um, my empty house. Did you come and visit me? I was hungry, and I peered into the windows of banquets and diets, and I saw more food flushed down the disposal than my family had to eat. Did you give me something to eat? I was a stranger. I was new on the job, new in the city, new in the neighborhood, new in the church. Did you come and introduce yourself to me? One question. I, I know a man who I think, well, I, I don't know. I just know about him. A man who did his best to answer that question. I had a friend who had a Uncle Harley and an Aunt Emma, and he wrote a short story about them, and he shared it with me. I'll tell you part of it. Uncle Harley and Aunt Emma lived in a little town in Tennessee. Um, they went to a holiness church. Now, I'm going to have to help some of you. Holiness churches in the rural areas, I'm sure they're fine people, but they're really into outward behavior. A little bit of eye makeup, ooh, evil, evil stuff. You're not going to be in church, at least not a member. You went to the movie theater and saw a movie? Uh-uh, no. You, some of you are looking at me like you've never heard of this. This is real stuff. And Uncle Harley's problem with the Holiness Church was tobacco. You see, he was in World War II, and the GIs, you know, they were handed out free cigarettes. And while he was in World War II, he admits he began to have a love affair with a camel cigarette. He did his best to try to fight the habit seven, eight times, never could beat it. Well, you know, they talked about it and they said, well, you know, um, his sister lived with him a while and didn't she die of cancer? Maybe it's his fault. And so there were these whispers and Aunt Emma and Uncle Harley were never invited to join the Holiness Church. Okay, you can come, but when you come, be sure to sit in the back of the church. So the days of Uncle Harley and Aunt Emma um, in this little town those were different days than now. There were a lot of what we call drifters and hobos moving about. What you need to know about this little town, it was halfway between Chicago and New Orleans, so it was the major way station. It was a place for repairs and refueling, and the train always slowed down there, and that meant for the hobos, what? There would be train inspectors. So when that train pulled into their little town, what did those drifters and hobos do? When it slowed down, they would jump off the train. And so this little town became kind of a gathering place for hobos, spending a night before they could catch another train. I know some of you, I don't know if you've heard of this. There was a day when there were a lot of these kind of travelers. They were called hobo marks. There would be just maybe a little bit of paint on a sidewalk, in front of a church, restaurant, somebody's house that would be friendly to these travelers. And my friend who was writing this piece, he said, I bet I was over at their house and I would see this scene happen over a hundred times. We would be inside and there would be a knock on the door and Uncle Harley would open the door and there would be a man standing there taking off his hat and said, excuse me, sir, do you think I could have something to eat? He said, Uncle Harley never just... Uh, 
It wasn't a hard call. If it was cold, he'd say, come on in and sit at our table, and they would have exactly what we had had to eat that night. It wouldn't be a bologna sandwich or, uh, you know, some other little sandwich just shoved through a crack in the door. They would sit at the table. But Uncle Harley loved it when it was good weather because, you know, remember I told you about a smoking habit, and that meant he could be outside on the porch, and he could eat with his new friends out there. And he said, Uncle Harley, bring a table and chairs out there. And, and when it was good weather, it'd usually be four or five of these new friends, and we'd be sitting there. And he said, Uncle Harley was the best Jews harp player in, in the county. And after we had a good meal, he'd pull out the Jews harp, and some of those hobos, well, some of them had banjos, and some of them had fiddles, and great was the fun. And I'll never forget those evenings spent with Uncle Harley and the hobos. After I read this piece that he wrote about his uncle and aunt, I said, look, I, I, I can tell you really miss your uncle a lot. You know, if, if, we, if we could have a miracle of time and space and that he could be here right now, what, what would you want to say to him? What would you want to ask him? He said, you know, I'm afraid one thing I want to do, I want to ask him why in the world he kept going to that church and sitting in the back and he was unwanted and he was unwelcome. I would want to know what was it like to um, say you're not in. But then he said, um, I'd want to ask about those meals. I'd want to ask about those meals with those men called drifters. And I'd, I'd want to ask him, um, what did you see in them? What did you see in them? Well, I turned to my friend and I said, you know, I don't think I'd ask Harley a question. I think I'd just, I think I'd just want to say something to him if he was here, if he was alive. I said, Harley, I say one of my fun imaginations is, is thinking about God throwing a party, a God-sized banquet. And this would be the banquet that represent God's idea of a good time. And when I think of that, Harley, oh, I'm really sure you're not going to be on the outside looking in. You're going to be right there at the head table, you and your hobo friends. And then I'd say, Uncle Harley, when I think of that picture, for the likes of I can't help but see the face of Jesus. Let us pray. Oh God, we confess that our love has often been narrowed by our narrow way of looking and seeing. Help us to go out there in the world, not look just once, but to look twice so we can see all there is to see, a brother, a sister, our very Lord. In his name we pray, amen.